everybody, welcome back to another Impactful Night of the Impact Educational Leadership. This is episode 131, and this is the beginning of our new season, season six. So we're so excited. I'm your host, ID3, Friday Drone Third. Tonight's panelists are Larry Davis and Dr. Angela Taylor. Larry Davis, please say hello to the people. Hello, hello. Looking forward to talking with you, Lou. So glad to have you here. And Dr. Angela Taylor, please say hello to the people. Hello, thank you so much for having me here tonight, and I am really excited to have a fruitful conversation. Tonight's topic is a self-directed classroom culture. Educating students includes helping them develop the skills to be clear, clear about their values while letting go of the idea that a student's success reflects on you. As educators and leaders, we must be clear in communicating with people who have diverse backgrounds. Competence building is one of the many vital tools to help support individual children's learning and to support them inclusively. With those high expectations involve expressive and healthy relationships throughout their education in personal and school settings that should model how they are to learn. And what we mean by learning is also learning those necessary concepts key to analyzing and critical thinking strategies. We prepare them for this when we foster peer support, when we consider natural consequences and believe in their personal abilities to have those positive growth mindsets. Especially now, as education has pivoted to the digital age, we must focus more as our teens navigate through peer culture, leadership skills, and teaching them to be resilient and teaching them how to accept failure and learning culture play and essential role in preparing them with the social skills needed for all students to have their voice and to be successful moving forward. You know, I, I, I find it I find myself in a situation where I'm blessed to have the panelists that I have uh, on tonight to talk about this topic. Um, I, I, I sought out to them, they sought out to me, and it just it just happened. It was God sent. It, it was very uh, directed, and, and I know tonight is going to be uh, highly effective. Uh, not only for our teens, but also for for our teachers, um, our, our educational leaders, and, and our leadership as a whole uh, moving forward. I, I want to let me bring first uh, Larry Davis 
but before I ask any questions, you know, uh, Mr. Davis, please tell us a little bit about you and what you're doing currently, sir. Well, I'm a second career educator, and as an educator, I've been a high school I've been a high school teacher, an assistant principal, an associate principal, a high school principal, a district administrator for school improvement, a district administrator for AVID, a district administrator for uh, college career readiness, uh, CTE and IB programs, a regional superintendent, and a regional director. And currently, right now, I'm actually working on. Uh, school improvement plans for a district I'm kind of consulting with right now. So that's where I'm at right now and uh, going around doing uh, conferences. I just finished one about two weeks ago, the Texas Alternative Educa- the Texas Association of Alternative Educators Conference, where I spoke on uh, working with our 4D students, defiant, difficult, disrespectful, and disruptive. And then next week I'll be speaking in, at a conference in Sacramento, California on retaining good teachers because of this great, what we call the great resignation. So that's where I been that's my journey and that's where I'm at thank you for asking when I talk to you, I, I just, I feel like the bridge is so easily connected to uh, our next uh, panelists because as you talk and as I listen to you, I hear words like transformation. I hear uh, words like best practices. And, you know, because a lot of times people want to hear procedures, right? They want to hear rules. and but, but when you make those expectations clear, I think that gives us a, a better uh, blueprint print a better way of navigating a better gps to, to making uh, those high expectations happen right and and, I, and those are i believe they're, they're, they're the golden rules i believe if, if i could say that uh they're going to be the golden rules that we will need to implement uh moving forward i want to thank you for that uh let me go to the next panelist uh, that's going to be uh, the, the legendary Dr. Angela Taylor. Please tell us a little bit about what you're doing currently, Dr. Taylor. Uh, much like Mr. Davis, Dr. Davis, I've been in education for quite a while now, 21 years, and I have been a teacher. Uh, I've taught uh, 4th grade, 8th grade, 11th grade, an assistant principal special education, a principal, and in the district office as a director of schools. And just recently in June, I left my job in Pittsburgh so that I could pursue some things that I wanted to pursue. And um, I've started my own educational consulting business. I'm also an adjunct professor teaching adult ESL students. And over the summer, I completed my first book called Demystifying the Angry Black Woman Stereotype Through Self-Actualization, and it's a discussion of strong black women. So at this juncture, I am looking for new ways to serve children and adults that serve children. Well, you know, that was to just even think about and, and talk about and you know it's conversations like that it's topics like that like self-actualization that we need to have um, moving forward especially when uh, this podcast is being um, listened to and, and you know throughout the United States it's being listened to in different parts of the country of Germany uh, Bangladesh Brazil uh, France and Europe United Kingdom Australia 
even Ireland, uh, Lolo's Nigeria, shouting out to them. Uh, Canada is, is listening in, uh, even in South America, uh, Chile and in Southeast Asia, the Philippines, uh, Sweden, Turkey, Mexico, um, Italy. They're listening to the podcast in Belgium, in Cambodia, Costa Rica, uh, the country of Georgia and United Arab Emirates. Even in Barbados, they're representing us out there. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. And even in Denmark. And so, you know, conversations like this are so vital. And, you know, since we have um, both of our guests tonight are, are African-American, and I kind of first, you know, uh, went to the achievement gap and kind of like the history of the achievement gap and, and the stereotypes that are involved and I'm talking now, I'm going back to the United States uh, specifically, but they are involved uh, with this achievement gap in education. Uh, you know, the finger has been pointed uh, at African-Americans uh, for for uh, decades, you know, and and for some apparent reason, this, this gap is not closing, it's actually getting wider. And I, I wanna pull one of the, uh, panelists in on this, whoever wants to cover this, but you know, what is going on here? Uh, what, uh, who is being targeted first, whether, whether it's uh, female African Americans, male African Americans, uh, what, what age group does it start with the stereotyping, uh, with this, um, this, this glass ceiling, whatever you want to call it, this, this stop. Um, this stop sign uh, as it relates to social mobility. Uh, if I'm saying this correctly, you know, please uh, expound upon it. And if and if I'm if I'm incorrect, please stop me. Uh, who wants to take that conversation about why why are we still uh, being pointed at as African Americans as it relates to the achievement gap in the education system in the United States? And and is anyone profiting? from this stereotype. So we'll stop that. Uh, Ms. Strong, I, let's do this. I will, when you pose a question, I would love for Ms. Taylor to go and then I'll follow up because I'm pretty sure she's gonna throw some things out there I've never heard. So I'll piggyback off her. So I'll defer to her first on every question and I'll come in afterwards. Well, I know prior to us starting this, Dr. Davis, you know, shared some data that I think would be important to share with the audience. Um, but I could specifically speak to my personal experience working in the school systems in, in Pittsburgh and um, in Georgia in urban and rural school systems. And a lot has to do with how we're training our educators or not training um, our educators. There really isn't room uh, for educators anymore to be the stage on the stage, we really have to focus on helping our children problem solve and think. And in order to do that, we have to not avoid discussions like critical race theory. We have to be willing to have open, honest conversations, tell the truth, and do the work required to get to know 
the needs of our students. And that, you know, empathy is important. Um, we should all practice empathy. Um, but I think in some cases, our educators mix empathy with excuses and entitlement, and that does not serve our children well. We need to um, select curriculums that are relevant, and that's difficult to do because usually there's dollar signs behind curriculum. And um, we just need to find educators and politicians that are just willing to do what's right for children. And I'll pass that off to you, Dr. Davis. Well, well let, me, wow. let, me, let me say something real quick. Let me say something real quick because that was so good. Because, uh, and, and I want to challenge uh, Mr. Davis too before he responds because that was that was so rich. That was so rich. And, and so as as I was listening to you talk, I heard some things, uh, Dr. Taylor, uh, as it relates to that intellectual development with our with our black and brown students, right? Uh, and, and drawing from their uh, individual uh, intellectual development, their, their brilliant minds, letting them see uh, their genius. I also heard from what you said, uh, a, a lot of times we focus on their physical development, right? Uh, you know, muscular strength, your, your talent as it relates to your athleticism. Right, but we're not focusing on as much as their psychological development, and, and not just risky behavior, not just uh, their anxieties and, and their feelings that that shift and it goes back and forth. Right, but how about are you okay today? You know, what did you do over the summer besides play basketball? Besides play sports? besides play video games right and so when when I heard you speak I, I heard the, some of those things but I, I'm I'm gonna I'm let it go for right now Dr. Taylor that was powerful and here's, here's here's what I would say we spent so much time on testing state testing all these things that we're we're no longer teaching actual life skills. You know, I know in the early 2000s, they call them soft skills, but what they are, they're human skills, right, that we need to develop. You ask, ask about a, a school system where children of color had showed their value. Well, we don't have a system like that. The school, the school system that we have right now does not encompass the values of the black community. And that's what Dr. Taylor was kind of saying. So it's hard to go to a school and, and ingratiate yourself in a school system that doesn't support you, doesn't represent you, doesn't celebrate you or acknowledge you. Uh, and, again, we go back to Black History Month. <laughs> we have educators who think, educators, adults, who still believe that everything that black people accomplish happened in the month of February, and we know that's not true. So when we look at how can we get better, how can we make things better for us, you know what, let's hire people who have a purpose and a passion for teaching. Let's hire people who, yes, they see colors, but guess what? They see children first and foremost, right? Uh, I wrote a book back in 2017, The Reeducation of the African-American Child in Today's School System, and it talked about just that. We don't do anything to celebrate our kids, and we have so many teachers who when our kids come into the school, 
they've already been stereotyped from A, the community they come from, their zip code, uh, their socioeconomics. And think about this, Texas and other places in this country, we consider students of color subgroups, not student groups, not student populations, we consider them subgroups. And as long as we look at a, one group as a group above and everybody else as subgroups, we're gonna have learning gaps and we're gonna have children who don't believe in the education system in which they're being forced upon. We have compulsory attendance, but not compulsory learning. And as long as we have an acceptable failure rate, those students of color would be the ones that are failing. And so, and I love what she said about, she, she talked about earlier about the, uh, the angry black woman, right? The self-actualization. That's what they expect. When our parents come into the school, when we come into the school as parents, they hope that we're angry. They hope that we're upset because then they can say, oh, we don't have to deal with them. They can have police set us outside the building because now if we're not there as an ambassador for our kids, the teacher's not gonna be an ambassador for our kids. And they're gonna stereotype the black woman as angry. They're gonna stereotype the black man as he doesn't wanna to come to anything but a basketball game or a football game. And then that leaves our students that are fending for themselves. So the whole narrative of what we can do better for our school system, it starts at home. It has very little to do with the community because the community doesn't educate children. It does if we allow it to, and that's what we're trying to keep it from doing. And then we have to be ambassadors for our kids. If the school system isn't doing what it needs to do, we need to go and run for the school board. If the school board isn't doing what it needs to do, we need to get the members off the school board. If the superintendent isn't doing what he or she should be doing for the schools in our communities, our low socioeconomic communities, our impoverished communities, our communities of color, we need to get that superintendent out of office by running for school board. So there's so many things that we can do that until we own those things, it's not gonna change, but we have to own that process. Beautiful. That was, that was absolutely uh, beautiful. Uh, and you know, I heard you mention critical race theory. And I, I got to talk about it for a little bit. So critical race theory uh, basically is, basically is supposed to be us living in a world uh, and us trying to live in this society with a type of color blindness. And I'm like, to me that's so irresponsible. It's, it's irresponsible as children of God, right? Because last time I checked, we are not robots. We didn't design ourselves. And so this is a disrespect to God because God made us rainbow children, children of different colors and different facets. And he, he wants to see one another, not to be blind. Oh, your skin is white, but I, I see you as, uh, you know, a black man because you're sweaty. Or, or, or your skin is black, but I see you as, as a white man because you're dressed in a suit and, and wearing glasses. Get out of here. Okay, and it's resurfaced because of what happened in 2020, right? With, with, with the killings and the protesters. But this, this is something that I believe linked more to irresponsibility and negligence than anything else. And, and it's, it's bigger than ignorance. It's, it's just irresponsible. Because if you look at society as a whole historically, right, in this country, it was always the aristocrats that were at the top of the pyramid. And they made everyone below them fight. 
Everyone below them had the crab mentality. You didn't see the aristocrats fighting the common man, but they made the common man fight one another. And that was the separation. And so when we bring up terms like critical race theory, they have to be discussed. They have to be talked about so that we can put a spotlight on this, this, uh, this is recorded, but the term that I, that's coming to mind to me is uh, America, grow up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. America needs to be resuscitated. We need to advance. We need to move forward. It's not about us because of technology. We are now in a global society, okay? And the world does not revolve around the United States any longer. Anyway, with that being said, I don't want to go off into a tangent, but uh, let me ask the question to you, Larry Davis. So, sir, this conversation's yes. been good. How do we, how, how do you use your experience as a sought-after educator, educator and an educational leader to motivate not only African-American kids, but children in social, economically disadvantaged demographics, communities, those students, how do you motivate them to complete both short and long-term assignments without giving them rewards and incentives, but making it intrinsically um, gratifying for them and so if you can share with us because we want to hear what you got to say I promise we're going to listen we're going to we're going to walk with you right but what are some key ways leaders can retain uh, and sustain and, and grow top talents uh, in education uh, as it relates to those people that have the gift of, of pulling of pulling these this motivation out of these um, out of these different uh, types of students and these demographics. Uh, so I guess that's a two part question, but I'll let you chew on that for a little bit. And you know, what's your thoughts? Well, you know, here's the thing. First thing you say without motive, without uh, incentives. The fact that we give grades, the fact that we have a class rating and a class ranking, that's incentive. So we can't take the incentive out of the motivation. It's there, right? And that's the reality. But I will say this. Here are two known facts. Students come to school when they're known by their teachers, engaged in their work, and connected to the school. This is all students. They're that, remember the show Cheers? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Mm -hmm. School has to be like that for our children, for all children, but especially for children of color. Because so many times our children, children of color, when they leave our building, they're adults. But when they come back to the building, we treat them like children. So we need to recognize some of the factors that, that impact them other than that building, right? We want to make sure that the environment that we pour our children into is going to be one that's going to benefit that child. So when you talk about motivating them to complete long-term and short-term assignments, how important is that assignment, right? In Texas, we know that homework should be given only to complete an assignment that wasn't done that wasn't completed during that class day, or it's a project. And in Texas, homework is not supposed to penalize a kid because it's supposed to be enrichment. However, so many schools, so many teachers use homework 
to penalize kids. They take points off and things like that. And if you don't look at the factors that impact that kid, I have to go home and babysit. I have to go home and be mom and be dad. I have to go home and go to work because I, I, I provide 25% of my household income to my family. And you're going to fail me because I didn't turn in a writing assignment that was done at home, which was supposedly before enrichment anyway. We're not going to get there. We have to understand what's important to our students, what's important uh, to the learning, and what's going to move them the most. Uh, I remember back in the 70s, because that's how old I am, the shows used to say something like, how can you tell me where to go if you don't know where I come from? We need to be more culturally aware of our children, their surroundings, and their living environments. And then we need to focus on the things that are important to their education. Think about this. If you can go to college for five weeks during the summertime and get the same credit that you spent four months, how much fluff did they add to that four-month curriculum that they took out of that five-week curriculum? The same thing with summer school with our kids, right? Our kids go to summer school for four and a half weeks during the summertime uh, for three hours a day, and they can get a, a half a credit, which is the same half credit they would, would have gotten if they'd taken a whole semester of the same curriculum. So we have to be able to write better curriculum. We have to be able to provide better curriculum instruction for our kids, and we have to engage our kids in things that they want to do and connect them to the school. And uh, I want to make sure Ms. Dr. Taylor gets some time to talk, but one thing I did when I was a principal, I took over school and 60% of the kids there did not do it, did not belong to the school. We had one of the highest uh, disciplinary rates in the, in, the, in the state. In fact, we were stage three PBMAS, which at stage four, the state comes in and looks at your gifts in your business. And one thing I did, I had my teachers, every teacher find two students who were not in their classroom. They were not involved in football, basketball, not involved in theater, band, or choir, not, not connected in any club organization. And they had to speak to those students twice a day in two different environments for two months. And by the end of that two months, and I wish I could tell you every teacher did this, but they didn't. But the majority of them did it. Enough for us to become stage one, which is where we should be, and we dropped our discipline referrals by 66% because we built genuine relationships with students. We connected them to the school. They were no longer invisible. And students started, and I, I did away with the taking out points for late work. We didn't do that because there's nothing in the curriculum to say time management is part of our curriculum. So if a student turned in work, we were going to take that work and grade it because if we didn't grade it, how could we tell what that student needed? That was a real-life example of a success story. So I'm... I, we can't take that away from you, but I, I want I want to know, and whoever can whoever wants to take it, please take it. But how we're going to motivate uh, our students? When I mean by our students, I'm saying those social economically challenged students to start increasing or raising their test scores. Uh, we're in Texas, so we have what star? That's right around the corner. We got what we got the ACPs, we got TELPES, which is writing and reading, and but then it's all leading up to STAR. And so, with with scores being low here in Texas, with some of these groups I'm, I'm mentioning, how do we motivate them? We right measure education now with technology in the mix through standardized testing. How can we motivate? our children to start raising their scores above and beyond. Who wants to take that? Well, you know, 
I'll, I'll speak to that. And I think um, relationships are very important. And it has to be the, the right relationships, positive relationships, appropriate relationships between students and, and educators. And oftentimes we talk at students or talk around students instead of engaging them in the process. I'm a uh, strong supporter of student-led conferences because students should be able to have a conversation with you about the work that they're doing. They should be setting their goals, and it's our job as educators to help students set goals for themselves. You know, as adults, we envision things that we would like to do. And we put a plan in place to do that. And we seek out, you know, we may seek out support and help to do that. But oftentimes, we lay out the plan for students instead of taking the standards and the content that is supposed to be taught on these standardized assessments. And how is it relevant to students, what are we doing as educators to connect the dots so our students see some relevancy in it? If if what they're learning is relevant, they're going to be interested in in getting involved with it. And also, I think that school has to be more than sitting in a classroom. You also have to include student affairs. That social piece is important um, to include activities. So sometimes n not every kid just loves to sit in language arts class. But if you have student affairs, if you've made the content relevant, if you have let them know that it's okay to learn differently, so here's our intended outcome, but we know that there are five or six different ways to get to the same intended outcome, and you've made it safe for children to take educational risk. I think that will help increase um, students to be intrinsically motivated to want to engage. You know, I agree with that, Dr. Kelly, because if our students are, are afraid to fail, then they're going to be afraid to try. And that genuine, authentic relationship between a student and a teacher, uh, between a, the student and the school, is, is, is needed. And when you think about it, the, the achievement gap exists because children of color are traditionally the ones who are suspended at a higher rate, they're put in school suspension at a higher rate, and they're sent to alternative campuses at a higher rate. And when they're suspended from school, there's no learning taking place. When they place an ISS, there's usually a paraprofessional who doesn't know math, English, science, or social studies, so there's no learning taking place. And when they're at an alternative school, honestly, most districts place their worst teachers at the alternative schools. And that's where our best teachers should be at. So when we look at that achievement gap and why our students aren't being successful, there are so many factors. We're reducing their academic time and we're reducing the opportunity to build relationships with them, which will connect them to our, to the schools, to the, to their schools. Oh, this is getting good. I, I told you this is going to be epic. This is going to be epic. Let's talk about sustainability. We hear some powerhouse ways of making it happen, but how do we sustain it? How do we, do, how do we have a child that's been disappointed how do we get them to overcome it so they can persevere 
and so we can sustain them, sustain their attendance, sustain their engagement. How do we sustain this motivation that we're that we're talking about tonight, as as it relates to our our social economically disadvantaged students? Who wants to take that? I'll take it. We have to get our parents involved. Parents, when you look at the key factors of why students are successful in school, the number one key factor for why students are successful is their, their mom. And then it's their parents. The mother is a key factor in students' success, right? And then it's their parents. But when we don't have our parents, when our parents feel like they're an intrusion to the day and not a part of the campus, we've disconnected from the parents and now we've disconnected from the students and now the fight is even tougher. We can't, we, we spend so much time saying we're gonna, even if when we think about discipline, when we're disciplining a child without the support of the parent, that process is incomplete. When we're trying to educate a child without the support of the parent, that process is incomplete. We have to complete that circle and that includes the parents. That includes that parent, that includes the parent being on school, that includes that parent being a volunteer. A volunteer, when I was a principal, I would go to football games and basketball games and I would I would purposely seek out dads whose sons or daughter was always in trouble. And I would just wander by them, sit down, introduce myself, and I would go, hey, you know what? You're so-and-so's dad. I'm so happy to meet you. If you have time sometime next week, can you come and see me? Can you come to my office? I just want to talk to you and, 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 and tell you the great things that your child is doing. Because young men of color need to see older gentlemen of color taking an interest in their academics, not just their athletics. So that's one way. Dr. Taylor? Um, I would also add to say that as adults, whether we're talking about parents or whether we're talking about school officials, we just have to be really honest with ourselves. And there's so much going on in education that unfortunately really isn't about children. And we have to get back to what is about children. When you talk about discipline, um, sometimes there's, there's a breakdown if the child needs to have discipline between the parent and the educator. And a lot of that has to do with how is the administrator or educator communicating with the parent? Are we talking down to the parent? Is the parent not focused on, okay, my child made a bad choice. How can I help hold them accountable so that they can do better? Or are they taking it personally and feeling like, my child made a mistake, I'm a bad parent. When are we getting to the place where we can set this aside and just focus on really, it's about the student and there's just so much in education that is about adult stuff and not children. So yes, it's important to bring parents into the conversation, have them a part of the process. I also think we have to provide better training for our educators. They're not, ed, educators aren't getting what they need on the college campus as it pertains to classroom management, as it pertains to building relationships or, or restorative practices. So until we have 
appropriate training and support for educators as well as parents, it, it's going to be hard because children will be able to play mom against dad, if you will. And at the end of the day, there are some students that no matter what you do, they just don't have that parental support. Uh, as Dr. Davis said before, some of our children are the parents when they leave school. So we have to make sure that we utilize our counselors in our building more effectively and help those students find their gifts and seek out opportunities. You know, when I was coming through school, there were a lot of programs but nobody was telling me about it or my parents about it. We had to accidentally overhear something and find out a, a resource or support. So I think we just need to be more communicative, put our counselors to work, and seek out opportunities for children and support them when their parents aren't available. What Dr. Kelly was talking about is we spend so much time on adults. Those are compliance issues, making sure that we're compliant. But compliant doesn't mean that learning's taking place. You know, we're just checking boxes when you talk about compliance. So we need to yeah. stop, move beyond just being compliant and focus on our kids. You know, what, what's being said now, uh, listen, Arnes, is what we call in education reflective thinking, right? Uh, but for us, to, I believe, because we got... Uh, some heavyweights with us tonight, <laughs> uh, world-class educators, uh, you know, but for us to move forward during this COVID-19, because, you know, we didn't speak about that tonight, but we have to reevaluate our results, how we've been looking at them, uh, which means we got to reevaluate the findings that we've had historically throughout education, right, so that we can re-clarify Right, our, our overall problems that we're having, right? Because now we have totally different scenarios that we've never, ever uh, dealt with before, never seen before. So we have to gather new information, and it's being it's being done. Research is being done right now, uh, so we can just look for for possible causes and solutions. Like the ones we were talking about tonight, I heard a lot of uh, evaluating um, data, information that that you have gathered throughout the years as it relates to educating our students. Right, I've heard tonight the different alternatives that can be used with parents, uh, with guardians, right? And uh, but it's all about, like Dr. Taylor said, it's all about choosing choosing and implementing which one works, which one fits. Because education, I know we try to make it cookie cutter, but it's not because it should change like bi-directionally per each culture. You cannot teach every class. I don't think you can, and someone can take this, but I don't think you can teach every classroom exactly the same. I think you have to change up your strategies depending on the, the culture of the classroom. But um, if anybody wants to speak to that, they can. If not, I want to ask a question to Dr. Taylor. Anybody want to take take what I just said? And well, I, I'll just speak briefly to it. I, I agree with you in that 
it's important to differentiate instruction for students. But in order to do that, you have to get to know your students, understand what, what they need. You not, you not only need to know what your students need, you need to know what your teachers need and provide them the proper training because just like we expect educators to differentiate for students, administrators, we have to differentiate for our educators and we have to, again, be able to have that those honest conversations about what needs to happen to grow. And the evaluation process for educators is a big part of that and that it really should be a cyclical process of growth based on what are your students doing as a result of your offerings. Now, I'm glad you said that, Dr. Taylor, because I'm going to ask you a question on that, because you talked about honesty, and that was perfectly aligned to a question I'm about to ask you, because with this pandemic, right, on our hands, we're in a quagmire. We're in quicksand, and so now children, now more than ever, I believe, need a point of reference. They need something stable. They need a solid ground. They need a foundation, and if teachers don't know who they are, how are they going to give them that? My question for you, how do we use, you wrote a book about self-actualization. Let me use that. How do we use self-actualization to teach our students intrinsic values while letting go, while letting go of the idea that a student's success reflects on you as the teacher totally? How do we do it? Well, I would first say that everyone's journey towards self-actualization is different. And I can, I can really only speak based on my frame of reference as a black female. And as a black female and the things that I've experienced in my life, I understand that tenacity, that a strong work ethic, um, and the no excuses mentality has helped me overcome some of the barriers that I face because of my blackness or femaleness. So with that being said, I think it's important for an educator to encourage their students to think and problem solve um, and, and take accountability for action. We have to have a mindset where we're not the stage on the stage, but we are understanding our learners and their needs and helping them understand their gifts. Everyone has a gift. So we have to help them understand their gifts and their talents and how to use them opposed to this is this is this beautiful lesson plan that I've created and I need you to fit into the box of my lesson plan. Really, we need to look at the students, look at their areas of growth and areas of needs and give them tools, give them instructional strategies so that they can problem solve and think. Um, and now what I'm about to say may not be very popular at all, but I hear a lot about uh, we need to give students the education that they deserve. And I was raised old school that you're not entitled to anything and you need to work hard. 
And what I mean by that is most of my career I've worked in urban school systems. And the error and the attitude of entitlement, entitlement will not serve our children well. We still need to support them with the old information of hard work is important, accountability is important, taking calculated risks is okay. Here's the time in school to take those risks while you're in a safe place, while you have adults that are here to um, support you. I believe children deserve the, the best of the best and the best that we have to offer. So there's two things. A, every school in this country was built to educate children, not to employ adults. So let's get back to focusing on our children. And number two, the needs of our children should always outweigh the wants of adults. So let's get back to focusing on our children. I totally concur with Dr. Davis at the end of the day. We just need to do what's right by children because our children are going to be responsible for making decisions about us in our, goal, in our old age. And what we pour into them is exactly what we're going to get back out. We are all blessed. Well, listen, this was another Impact Tonight on Impact Education Leadership. 